Well, good morning. Welcome to our service this morning here at Solid Rock. It's a great day, and uh, there's a feel of Christmas in the air. And I'm excited because this morning we are going to start a, a brand new a sermon series. This series is titled Christmas Traditions. A few years ago, about seven or eight years ago, we did a series called Christmas Traditions. Um, but it was a little bit different uh, focus. Uh, this time in this series, we're going to talk about some of the secular traditions of Christmas. And uh, so today, we're going to talk about Santa Claus, the children's favorite Christmas tradition. But this message is not for children. Okay? It's for us as adults. You know, the manner in which we celebrate Christmas today is nothing if not traditional. We have family traditions as far as how we celebrate Christmas. How many of you open your gifts on Christmas Eve? The way it's supposed to be done. <laughs> I'm just kidding. How many of you wait till Christmas morning? Some of you, some of you raise your hands twice. <laughs> so that's all right. We have traditions about how we open our gifts, how we eat with our family, and when we open our gifts, and what we do after we open our gifts. Usually, eat some more. And uh, we have uh, traditions at. Um, in, in our uh, community as well. We have music traditions, the kind of music we like to uh, listen to. We have cultural traditions and things that we've learned from our parents and we've passed on to our children. And, of course, the cultural traditions are you know, putting up the Christmas tree, uh, putting up Christmas lights, and, of course, retelling the story of Santa Claus to our children uh, this past week, I asked a youth and youth group, I asked them if they remembered the last time they sat on Santa's lap. And uh, some of them just uh, remembered, yeah, I mean, it's been a while. Somebody who will remain unnamed said, uh, it was last year. So that's, that's okay. Um, and, uh, and then I also asked them if, uh, how old they were when they learned the truth about Santa Claus. And, uh, of course, when I asked that question, Jonah made me laugh because he said, what? I went, oops. <laughs> Maybe I should have talked to the parents first. Well, as we start this new sermon series titled Christmas Traditions, I want us to take a look, a closer look at some of our cultural traditions and, and see, I think we're going to learn during the series, uh, that many of them actually reveal the heart of God. And so we're going to start this series talking about Santa Claus. We'll, we'll also talk about the Christmas tree and Christmas lights, other uh, secular, for lack of a better word, traditions. But we're going to start by talking about Santa Claus. Now, to most people, Santa Claus is a jolly old man in the red suit, as we've seen him in, in many movies, uh, going back to the original Miracle on 34th Street, and of course, the Santa Claus, it's is playing all over, uh, the, you know, different channels right now. Uh, Elf, uh, A Christmas Story, The Polar Express, and so many, so many different movies that we've uh, we've seen and, and learned to love uh, over the years. Uh, so people say, "Oh, that's you know, that's Santa Claus." Uh, our children learn to recognize him. About two or three weeks ago, this uh, before uh, Thanksgiving. I was at the mall with, with Karis, my four-year-old granddaughter, and uh, we were walking. She was walking beside me, and then we saw 
Santa Claus coming toward us with another employee. And I, and I thought it was kind of early, but I thought, I thought maybe they already have, uh, uh, you know, a, a setup, a place, excuse me, a, a station for, for Santa Claus. And so I thought, I wonder what Karis is going to do. Well, she, she saw him, and I, I noticed when she noticed him, and uh, he was, he looked, you know, some Santa Clauses look fake, right? This guy looked legit. He looked like he could have been the real Santa Claus, according to our image that we have in our head about the way he, he should look. And so when he got closer, uh, he smiled at her and she ran to him and she gave him a hug, hugged his leg, and he gave her a little uh, peppermint uh, candy. So she was real happy. And it happened real quick. I didn't take a picture because as a grandpa, you know, you always have to take pictures of the grandkids. And um, so then he walked on by. He was very friendly. And then we continued. And then she said, uh, she told me, Grumpy, why was he here? That's a good question. You know, he started making his rounds, I guess. You know, so I just thought it was interesting. She, she, she thought about that. You know, but that's our idea of, of Santa Claus. But if you look back in history just a little bit, you'll, you would find out that this image of Santa Claus that, that we have in, in our mind, this modern vision of Santa Claus with the, the beard and the rotund shape with the, the fur suit and you know, a pipe, it's not really that old. I mean, it goes back over 100 years, but considering, you know, how far back the, the, the pre-history uh, of Santa Claus goes, it's not really that far back. In fact, it was on January 1st of 1881 that Harper's Weekly published a drawing by a man named Thomas Nast, and uh, he called this drawing Merry Old Santa Claus. And uh, I want us to, to see this. This is what it, what it looked like, Merry Old Santa Claus. And this is what kind of set the standard by which most people think of Santa. The reason we have our image of Santa now kind of goes back to this drawing, in, which I think is kind of creepy. But, you know, that, that drawing of Santa Claus in 1881. Before then, nobody really had a, an idea of what Santa Claus might look like. Now, this man who drew this, Thomas Nast, he was actually drawing on the imagery of a poem that had been written almost 60 years earlier in, in 1823. We know this poem as The Night Before Christmas. How many of you have heard this, right? So you can help me here. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that who? St. Nicholas soon would be there. Now, the poem says St. Nicholas, not Santa Claus. You know, we're expecting Santa Claus to come, right? The kids are. But the poem in 1823 says St. Nicholas. So the poem gave rise to an image that Thomas Nast put together and he put down through, uh, through this drawing. Uh, but it was a drawing not of Santa, but of St. Nicholas. In fact... What you may not know is a poem that we just started to recite. This poem, we, we know it as A Night Before Christmas. It's actually called A Visit from St. Nicholas. That's the title of the poem. Uh, a Visit from St. Nicholas. If you say that to people, they, they would say, mm, I don't think I've heard that. It uh, was A Night Before Christmas. Oh yeah, I know, I know that one. Uh, so it's actually about St. Nicholas. Now who was St. Nicholas? And how did he come to be such a big part of our modern day Christmas celebration. 
Well, to answer that, we've got to go further back than 1881 and 1823. We've got to go way back in history to the year 270. In the year 270, a man uh, or a little boy uh, named Nicholas was born in a city located which is now in the uh, southeast or southern coast of Turkey, a city by the name of Patera. He was born in 270, Nicholas was, and he wasn't St. Nicholas when he was born. He was just Nicholas, plain old Nicholas. But unfortunately what happened is when he was still a very young boy, uh, there was a plague that struck the city of Patera, and both his parents died in this plague. His father and mother both died. And so his closest relative was an uncle who happened to be a monk, so he lived in a monastery, and so Nicholas went to live with him as a little boy, went to live with his uncle in the monastery. So as he grew up in the monastery, through that experience, he discovered, uh, he discovered the truth about Jesus. He learned about God, learned about the teachings of Jesus. And he decided that he wanted to serve God. He wanted to serve Jesus like his uncle. And he wanted to become a monk when he grew up. Unfortunately, he didn't qualify to become a monk because to be a monk, you had to be very poor. And this little boy was not poor. In fact, his, his parents had been very successful in, in, in life and business. And when they died, they actually left him a small fortune. Or maybe it wasn't such a small fortune. They left him a lot of money. So he had a lot of money and he didn't qualify to be a monk. So he says he decided he was still very young. He decided he was going to give away all his money to help those that were in need and especially children that were in need and were in trouble. But he decided he would do this in an anonymous way because he had read and had heard and been taught the teachings of Jesus and he wanted to obey what Jesus said. So here's what he read that caused him to, to want to be anonymous in serving other people and giving away his earthly riches. In Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus said this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So he, he, he heard this teaching, he, he understood it, and he decided this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to obey the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and help the needy, but he decided to do it anonymously. And so there are several stories about how he did this, the most well-known stories of how Nicholas gave anonymously is, is known as the story of the three young maidens. And uh, it, it, the story goes like this. In the town where Nicholas lived, there was a man who had three daughters. And the three daughters were at an age where they, they were able to, to get married. But even though this man at one time had been well off, he had fallen on hard times. He didn't have any money at this point. Uh, he was poor. He had no dowry to offer to a potential groom for, uh, for his daughters, which meant that no dowry, they couldn't get married, they would eventually be slowed, uh, sold rather into slavery. 
to be sold into slavery or, or worse, uh, worse conditions. And so realizing this, one of the girls then decided to go ahead and sell herself so her sisters would have money for the dowry. But uh, young Nicholas heard about this plan and, and uh, he was struck with you know, how unfair this was. And, and he thought, I can help them. I've got the money. They don't need to be in this position. This girl doesn't need to sell herself into slavery. Uh, and so he came up with a plan, and his plan was very simple. Under the cover of night, he snuck up to the house where this man and the three daughters lived, snuck up to the house, and he threw a bag of gold coins through the window. He just threw a bag of gold coins through the window. Legend, legend has it that the bag landed in a stocking that the girls had put in front of the fireplace to dry. They just put it on the fireplace to dry, and some of the coins fell there, which is why the poem says the stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Uh, he, he just threw it in and some of, it, some of the gold landed there. They were just drying their stockings. They weren't expecting anybody. But in the morning, as the story goes, the father discovered the gold. And so they had money. Not long afterward, his oldest daughter was married. Not long after that, Nicholas decided to do the same thing for the second daughter. And soon she too was married. And so he thought, well, I'll do the same thing for the third daughter. But when he came up to the house a third time to try to throw some uh, 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 gold, a bag of gold for the third daughter, all the windows were closed. And he couldn't toss the, the bag of gold in through the window. So tradition says that he climbed up on the roof. Yeah, you know where this is going, right? He climbed up on the roof and he just dropped the bag down the chimney, and it landed in the girl's shoes, which were just right beside the hearth. And so she, she got the money through the, through the chimney. Now her father was very anxious to know, who is this secret benefactor? And so he was waiting up. He was watching, and he saw the bag fall, and he ran outside, and he chased the, this anonymous man. He chased him down until he caught him, and he turned him around, and it's Nicholas. Nicholas, you're the, you're the, uh, the benefactor. You, you've done a great thing. You've saved my daughters from, from certain disaster. Well, Nicholas was embarrassed and he didn't, wanna, he, didn't want, he didn't want others to know who he was, what he had done. So he begged the man, please don't tell anybody. Uh, keep my identity secret. He told him, you've got to thank God. Just thank God alone for providing these gifts and, and answer to, to your prayers. And he asked him to do that, but the father just could not keep quiet. And so the, the, the fame of Nicholas's generosity began to spread like, like wildfire. And I was thinking, uh, when I was reading this story, I was thinking about uh, several years ago when uh, my family and I were... Uh, around, uh, not, it, I don't know if it was around Christmas or not, but we're sitting around our, our very small TV. Back then, we had a really small TV. Uh, I, I mean, I'm talking, it was tiny. It was like 10 or 12 inches. Actually, I think it was 9 inches because it was one of those that we bought for the girls to, to watch TV in the car. It wasn't like one of these modern ones that, that you know, they're, they're flat and you put them up, you know, behind the, the seats in front of you. This was a big, it was kind of big, but the screen was only nine inches and it wasn't up high. It was down on the floorboard. So they had to look down to watch. And, uh, and so at the time, that's, that was our only TV. So we're in the living room and we're watching 
We were watching TV gathered around, and, and, and uh, Timothy, our nephew, was there with us. And uh, so we're all just there gathering around that little screen. And uh, I heard a knock on the door. I went out, opened the door, and there's a box on, the, on our porch with a TV, a brand new TV. And I saw it, and I looked up, and I saw this truck pulling away. Who was that? Well, he didn't move fast enough. It was Edward, my cousin, who had decided to donate us. And what happened is he had been there probably about an hour earlier. He saw us gathered around that little nine-inch TV. And he went to the store, and he bought us a TV, and he put it on the porch. He knocked, and he ran. But he didn't run fast enough. We caught him. I caught him. And uh, so I thought, I wonder if that's how Nicholas felt when he ran away from the house, but the man of the house uh, caught him. And, and the man of the house began to spread the news, and, and people began to find out uh, about Nicholas's generosity. But you know, that's really just the beginning of the story, because this young man, uh, who would eventually become Saint Nicholas, uh, a saint of the church, continued to grow in his faith. Now, this time, he was still a, a young teenager. And so now, by the time of, uh, he was 17 years old, he, just, he, he felt that God was calling him, not to the monastery, but God was calling him to... Uh, to the priesthood, to, to be a priest, to eventually be a pastor of, of a church. And so he did that, and, and uh, eventually he became a bishop, the Bishop of Myra, overseeing, overseeing the work of several churches uh, and, and other priests and pastors in that district. Uh, he didn't realize, though, that at the time when he first became bishop, that things were going to get hard. He was going to be leading those churches and those pastors through... One of the most difficult times in the history of Christianity. If any of you know anything about, Christi- about uh, church history, in, uh, in about the year 300, when Nicholas was in his early 30s, the, the Roman emperor at that time, Diocletian, uh, made a decree that everyone who claimed to be Christians were to offer, in the Roman Empire, were to offer a sacrifice to the pagan gods of Rome. Well, as you would expect, Nicholas and many other Christians refused to do that. And so as a result, he and hundreds of ministers, bishops, pastors, priests, even some lay people were dragged off to prison. And other Christians who weren't taken to prison were uh, faced with with, uh, severe torture. In fact, uh, Eusebius writes in one of his writings, he quotes a a witness who, who said, this about that time, a vast multitude was imprisoned in every place. The prisons prepared for murderers and uh, I should say murderers and robbers were filled with bishops, priests and deacons. So there was no longer room for those who committed common crimes. And so there was a, a severe persecution that he was going through now. But in spite of that, uh, Christianity began to, to spread. In, in fact, maybe because of that, Christianity began to spread. So much so that a, uh, a future emperor of Rome, about 10 years later, became a Christian. He converted to Christianity. And he made Christianity the official religion of the empire. And so when that happened, of course, the prison doors opened and out came uh, Nicholas and, and all the others. But those 10 years that he was in prison had an even more dramatic effect on him because 
He had suffered so much and he coming out made a commitment that he was going to serve those that, that were suffering, those that were in pain, those that were in need. And again, especially children, the plight of children was heavy on his heart. And so this burden became uh, stronger than ever before. And so he continued to give from his inheritance. Remember, he had this inheritance. Continued to give from his inheritance until it was completely gone. Serving the people until his death in the year 342. Well, when he died, when he died, some of the citizens of that district decided they were going to honor his memory by picking up where he left off. So they began to do what he had done. They began to anonymously meet the needs of those that were less fortunate. And when people would respond with, uh, where did this come from? They would say, oh, I guess St. Nicholas must have brought them. And that's, that's the way that this uh, tradition began to unfold. And that's how uh, uh, patron saints, uh, an early 4th century pastor, became the subject of this children's poem, which has now produced some of our most endearing and enduring Christmas uh, traditions. Now, the question is, what does that have to do with us today? Well, for many of us, Christmas is about figuring out how to give our families really good gifts. How to figure out how to give our families a really good experience at Christmas. We talk about we're just creating memories, right? We want them to have a good experience and, and, and create memories that we'll look back on fondly. That they'll feel an attachment to our family when they grow up and, and maybe move, move away as adults. They'll always have that attachment. And uh, that's what Christmas becomes. Of course, we know that Christmas is about celebrating the birth of Jesus. We understand that. But we don't always do a great job of, of connecting the birth of Jesus with the way we celebrate Christmas around the Christmas tree opening gifts. And I think that's where the story of St. Nicholas, who, who later became Santa Claus. Uh, St. Nicholas in, in different countries is known by different names. Uh, Father Christmas, uh, Chris Kringle. The Dutch are the first uh, ones who brought to America the name Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas. And so that became Santa Claus. Or for some of us, Santa Claus. Right? That's how we know him. And that's where the story of, of St. Nicholas uh, can help us discover what I think may be a missing component of Christmas. And so here's something I want you to remember uh, around Christmas time especially. But this should be a, a component of our life, I think, at all times. So think about this. In our generosity, we must remember those who have nothing to give back to us. Remember those who have nothing to give back to us. I think Nicholas understood that Jesus wanted to use his life and his resources to bless people. Those especially who could not turn around and immediately return the favor. I think he understood that Jesus wanted him to be a living, breathing demonstration of the grace of God. The mercy of God, the compassion of God, of God, the favor that is given to those who don't deserve it and can't repay it. He understood what Jesus was getting at when we read in Luke 6, 32 and 33 that Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Now, I, I don't want you to hear what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that it's not important to love the people who love you. It's not important to be generous to those who love you. Uh, it is very important. It, it matters. It makes a difference in their lives and, and, and your relationship with them. If, you're, if you love your inner circle, you love your family, your friends, and you're generous to them. I mean, that, that is important. But there's nothing truly special about it because as a father, uh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Love my children and my, my grandchildren and my, my siblings and my parents. That's what you ought to do. And so that's what pretty much anybody does. But if you want to do something really special, something godlike, Jesus said, then go beyond what everybody else naturally does and be loving to people who may not be able to return that love or return that mercy, return that compassion, that favor to you. Be generous to people who have very little and can't be generous to you in return. Much of our Christmas celebration is exchanging gifts, right? Where we give somebody and we get something in return. And that's fine. I, I really am not knocking you know, the way we celebrate Christmas. I'm just saying this could be a missing component of our Christmas celebration. So Jesus also said in, in Luke 6.35, But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then when you do this, Jesus said, something will happen. When you begin to think and act that way, Jesus said, the end of verse 35, six, uh, Luke 6.35, Then your reward will be great. And listen to this. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. That's powerful. Think about what Jesus is saying there. There's a, a, you know, there's a tangible reward that is ours in the world to come. Now there's, there's an intangible reward that comes now though. That's important. This personal experience of oneness, of connection with the God of the universe. You will be children of the Most High. This connection with the Most High God. That's what happens when we are generous with those who can't be generous in return to us. Um, the God of the universe is kind and generous to us. Uh, we're the ungrateful that Jesus is talking about. We're the wicked and God is kind to us. And so even though uh, we don't return his love, even though... We rebel against God, even though we have all sorts of excuses for why we can't follow God. In spite of that, He loves us and He gives us the greatest gift of all, His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we act in the same way that He does, Jesus is saying, if we act in the same way that the Father acts toward us, if we give the way that He gives, we experience who He is. We have that connection. So I want to suggest... I want to suggest something else, and, and I hope that you'll take this, uh, this whole context that I've been giving you now, and, and don't get upset with this suggestion. Here's, here's my suggestion for all of us. Let's stop spending every penny of our Christmas money on our inner circle, and start spending some 
on those who can't return the favor. I'm not saying don't give to your loved ones. I'm just saying don't spend 100% of your Christmas money on the same people. Now, some of you have already done this. Some of you, when I announced this, uh, it's been... I think four weeks ago that we announced our giving to the uh, children of uh, Goliad Elementary through House of Faith. Uh, you immediately pulled those cards and, and, uh, and sent in the money. I got a phone call from somebody who said, hey, can you come pick up my money? And I went and picked it up, took it over there. And, uh, and so, which by the way, if you haven't sent that in, it's still not late for you to do that. But uh, I was blessed by that response because it shows that you're thinking of of others. And that's really what, uh, what the Bible teaches us to do, what Jesus teaches us to do. Now, when I say let's stop spending every penny of our money on ourselves and our inner circle, I don't want to, I'm not saying that to try to make you feel guilty. This is why I said, I hope you understand, the, you know, what, what I'm saying and, and the spirit in which I'm saying this. Uh, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Guilt doesn't work, guilt never produces. Real change or even lasting change in people. Uh, in, in fact, uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9-7, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Now that last phrase is important because notice that God, it tells us what God loves and what God wants. He doesn't really want giving as much as He wants a person who enjoys giving. That's what He wants. He loves, it doesn't say, for God loves a great offering. For God loves a huge gift, financial gift. No, God loves a cheerful giver. So what God wants is people Christians who enjoy giving because that connects us to God. So how can we become those type of people? How can I become that kind of person? Well, the only real and lasting changes that take place in our lives are those that start in our heart. Those that, that, that God, those things that God does in us. So it has to start with us choosing to follow God. Look, any... Uh, anybody who's not a follower of God can, can give um, to, to the needy and check it off. Can drop some coins at the Salvation Army uh, you know, when, when they're taking up money in front of the stores. But it takes somebody who's been changed by the power of God. And, and, and two quick things in, in specific. One is this. If we're going to change become those kinds of givers, that type of giver. You must first of all believe the radical truth of God's Word. Believe the radical truth of God's Word. Believe what Jesus said. It sounds radical, I know. But remember, when it comes to giving and receiving, most of us, most of us don't believe what Jesus said. I mean, in our mind, it's simple math, right? It's like when you receive from somebody, you gain and your pile is bigger. When you give to somebody, you lose and your pile is smaller. But Jesus says, no, that's, that's wrong. The truth is just the opposite. He says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I mean, if we could put it in contemporary terms, we would say, store up your treasures in the bank of heaven. A, a bank that isn't over leveraged or, or too big to fail. Uh, a bank that will be there. What you put in will be there. And then interest because God's interest is great. So if we're ever going to become the kind of people who don't spend every penny on ourselves, we have to believe what Jesus said is true. And secondly, and I'll finish with this, rejoice in what you have received. Rejoice in what you have received. You can't give what you haven't received, right? People who, who feel the love of God have the capacity to love others. People who have been forgiven by God, have received forgiven, forgiveness from God, are able to forgive others who don't deserve forgiveness because we didn't deserve it. Deserve it. And so... It's fascinating to me that right after Jesus told his disciples that the reward in heaven would be great if they would be radically generous, even to their enemies. He said in Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. He's saying, look, out of your mercy that you receive from the father, let that mercy overflow to others. In Matthew 10, 8, Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. You have received freely, freely give. So we have to recognize first that we've received these blessings from God and rejoice in those things and give them to those in need. Um, I think when we don't give, well, let me put it this way. When we don't rejoice, we don't recognize that, that everything we have is a gift from God, from the Father of lights. If we don't recognize that and we don't rejoice in that, then we have a hard time giving it away to those in need. If we understand that it's it's all a gift from God, then we can give it to God because guess what? God's going to give more to us. Not so we can hoard. But let me finish with this. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 9, 10 and 11 reads like this. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So He, does, he doesn't just give us you know, the bread. He gives us a seed. We can plant that seed. He wants to bless others through us. We're enriched so we can be generous to others in every occasion. That good job you have, that good paycheck that God allows you to have, is not just so you can hoard it all, but it's so you can bless others. That's what this verse tells us. You've become enriched so you can be generous. And this generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And so today, as we consider that, I want us to reflect a few moments on this question, God, how can I become a generous person who, who uses the resources you've given me to bless others? You know, being a generous person isn't so much an issue of, um, of how much money you make or an issue of how disciplined you are with your money. 
It's really more a heart issue. It's not so much a financial issue. It's a faith issue. So I think that's where we start today. God, give me the faith to believe those radical things that you said when you said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's reflect on that and let's surrender to that belief, to that teaching of Jesus.